This week on the Video Games Podcast, we are talking about hip-hop and gaming, but more specifically, five of the best debut games of all time. One of my passions since the late 80s has been gaming, which should be obvious. However, another passion of mine since the early 90s has been hip-hop music. And growing up in the 90s, this was essentially a golden age of both music and gaming. On the gaming landscape, you had epic battles between Nintendo and Sega, with Sony entering the fray in the mid-90s. Super Nintendo, Sega Genesis, when I was dead broke, I couldn't picture this, said Biggie, and it shows that no matter the circumstances, everyone shared the same adoration for these systems and gaming. Musically, CDs were slowly becoming the standard, and there was no Spotify, and Napster likely even wasn't a thought yet. If you wanted to buy a new album, you would go to the store, and you would buy the disc. And if you discovered a new artist, it would be with listening stations that were placed around the store. This meant that artists spent a lot more time working on albums as a whole, trying to craft the best possible project from start to finish, including liner notes and inserts. It was less about the stream and how to get a certain percentage of your song played. In hip-hop, there is always a discussion about the best MCs, dead or alive, which can vary from person to person depending on who you're talking to. However, when talking about the best debut hip-hop albums, that discussion is a little more consistent across the board. Some of the most iconic debut albums of all time either launched illustrious careers or put that MC in a different realm for the rest of their existence, and even if they lost their magic, they are still remembered for their amazing early work. Some of the more common hip-hop debut albums that get brought up when talking about the GOAT include Notorious B.I.G. with Ready to Die, which was recorded at 21, Nas with Illmatic, which was recorded at 21 as well, and Jay-Z with Reasonable Doubt, which was recorded when he was just 27. Just like music, it's hard to have an impeccable debut that people remember for a long time. If it was easy, then many of the best debuts wouldn't be almost 30 years old, and even a lot of the developers that you would assume have been making masterpieces all along had to find their footing. Many of the developers that I thought would be shoo-ins, such as Nintendo, had many games before the popular ones that we might think were their first, such as Donkey Kong, including games for their first system, the Color TV game in the late 1970s, including Block Breakers and games inspired by Space Invaders, which took the world by storm at the time. Naughty Dog, which I thought with their first game after rebranding from Jam Software was Crash Bandicoot, which at the time was getting more out of the PlayStation than was originally thought possible. However, this was wrong and Naughty Dog didn't release Crash Bandicoot until 1996. Before that, Naughty Dog released Keef the Thief in 1989, Rings of Power in 1991, and Way of the Warrior in 1994. Most of these games, with the exception of Way of the Warrior, people will have never even heard of. Even games like Pac-Man, which was developed originally by Namco, had many games before the Little Yellow Dude started munching quarters in the 1980s. Games like GB, which isn't a household name that Pac-Man is, or even after Pac-Man when they found their stride with games like Pole Position and Galaga. 
With all of that said, here are five examples of debut games that best personifies a debut album. These games have lasted the test of time as people still regard these games highly and most of them are actually brought up when discussing some of the best games of all time. It's hard to believe that just over 10 years ago, a small independent team from Sweden released a very basic, blocky-looking sandbox adventure that went by the name of Minecraft. In just a few short years of public release, version 1.0 then released in 2011, and in 2014, they were acquired by Microsoft. In hindsight, it seems easy to see why Minecraft became such a phenomenon as it has all of the basic elements for success. On a technology front, Minecraft isn't a very demanding game with limited graphics and its signature minimalist art style. Minecraft has the ability to run flawlessly on almost any platform and it has nearly graced every system. Minecraft is also accessible to all ages whether you are 8 or 80 which is a large reason why it has sold over 200 million copies as there will always be a new audience for this series as kids are always growing up and entering the ecosystem and when parents are looking for a game that is safe for their children to play what better option than a family friendly sandbox that not only has the ability to play alone but with other members of the family. Minecraft not only has this simplicity for anyone, seriously anyone to pick up and play the game, but it also features plenty of depth and complexity that can lead to endless fun as the world is procedurally generated, meaning that the only limit to what or how long people can play is limited to their imagination. As you would expect with the best-selling game of all time, following the success of that and trying to match it would be a nearly impossible feat. In 2014, Mojang released Caller's Bane, a collectible card game, and in 2016, Crown and Council, and finally in 2020, Minecraft Dungeons. I would stake a lot on the fact that the average person has not heard of those first two games, making Minecraft Dungeons easily the best Mojang game since. And with the success of the Minecraft universe, the team finally realized that instead of trying to create a new IP and catch lightning in a bottle twice, the best course of action would be to expand the Minecraft universe. Minecraft Dungeons received a lukewarm reception, and in our review, the story felt a little empty, there were some technical issues, especially on the Switch, and it missed a lot of what makes a good dungeon crawler, and mainly, it forgot a lot of the mechanics that Minecraft is known for. The potential was high, but the original Minecraft wasn't a hit upon its early access in 2009 either, and even during its 1.0 in 2011. It took some time and updates to achieve the zeitgeist that is Minecraft as we know it today. Minecraft Dungeons did capitalize on the IP as even with tepid reviews across the board, the series has still managed to sell over 10 million copies in less than a year solely on the back of having Minecraft in the title. This is the same exact luxury that is afforded to some of those hip-hop artists that release stunning debuts. No matter what they release, even nearly 30 years later, they still garner enough attention. Yes, there were plenty of first-person shooters well before Gordon Freeman and Half-Life released in 1998, including Wolfenstein 3D, Quake, and of course the first-person shooter that put the genre in a league of its own with Doom. However, there was one thing that those games were all lacking and that was a good story. Instead of just mindlessly and extremely violently mowing your way through Nazis or demons, Half-Life provided a smart and rich narrative. 
You didn't control some superhuman space marine. You were just a basic scientist at the wrong place at the wrong time who was able to find a crowbar and survive. And unlike Minecraft, a game that has become the best-selling game of all time, the debut of Half-Life made a different impact on the industry. Half-Life arguably built the foundation for Steam, which was originally built as a way to update Valve games easily, and that launched in 2003. Steam is the largest digital distribution platform for PC gaming and in 2013 held 75% of the market and in 2019 had over 95 million monthly active users or MAUs. Most games that were likely thought about during the creation of Steam include Half-Life mods or the lineage can be easily traced back to Half-Life. Not only did Half-Life change how first-person shooters were made after its release, but it essentially was a major force in the reason for the development of Steam, which is something that was light years thinking ahead of just following up Half-Life with more games, it revolutionized digital distribution. While the original Half-Life isn't among the best-selling games of all time, with the likes of Minecraft, Grand Theft Auto, and Tetris, which are all over 100 million copies, it wouldn't even be in the top 10 of Switch games sold. There is no debating the mark that Half-Life did leave on the industry and gamers. That's not saying that the original Half-Life didn't sell well because it did. According to Valve in 2008, Half-Life had sold 9.3 million copies and by now it's likely sold over 10 million due to its timeless nature. And outside of the graphics, which of course look a little dated by today's standard, Half-Life is still very playable today. The legacy of Half-Life as the debut from Valve goes much farther than just sales figures. Four decades apart from the original release in 1998, fans are still begging for a Half-Life 3. And hopefully, with the recent release of Half-Life Alex, Valve might now have a rekindled love for the series and create more. Not every game on this list will have revolutionized the digital distribution of games or will have set the record for the most games ever sold. Sometimes, the end result doesn't need to be that grandiose to leave a lasting effect. Prior to Limbo, there was a clear distinction between games and art. Playdead blurred that line and figured out a way to take that to the mainstream. Limbo was considered by many as one of the best games of 2010, which also speaks volumes for an Xbox 360 arcade title before indies really gained notoriety as a noteworthy title. Also being considered as one of the best games of 2010 in a year that saw the release of such games like Red Dead Redemption, Super Mario Galaxy 2, Mass Effect 2, and StarCraft 2 shows just how much of an impact this small indie game made. There were good indies before Limbo, but Limbo also seems to have been the straw that broke the camel's back and made the mainstream take notice of independent games. In 2008, Braden's Spelunky were released, but to much less fanfare than Limbo garnered, and post-Limbo, we have seen many more games get attention for Game of the Year, including Edith Finch, Journey, and Inside. And we now have even seen big companies like Microsoft go big with their indies with their ID at Xbox program, and Nintendo with their indie game showcase, alongside how many indies show up first or exclusively on the Switch. 
Play Dead Studios still lives on today with their third game deep in development led by Arndt Jensen, one of the co-founders of the studio. However, after a short run with two highly acclaimed games that felt akin to a shooting star, a rift was created between Dino Patti and Art Jensen, the founders of the studio. Now, this is not a studio that faded away into obscurity, but instead delivered two of the best games of the decade and left a mark on the industry. The name that Playdead created for themselves with just two games is the reason why their upcoming game is highly anticipated, even with just half of the co-founding members, without a title, and without a release date. Playdead has afforded itself the luxury of delivering a title whenever it's ready. It's also the reason that during the Xbox and Bethesda showcase during E3 2021, Somerville from Jumpship, the studio that was formed by Dino Patti after his departure at Playdead, garnered as much attention as it did. The showcase featured some of the best that Xbox has to offer in the near future, and the inclusion of Somerville in the showcase is not an accident as it seems to share much of the DNA that Inside and Limbo both had. In the late 80s, Maxis was founded and their first game that was released was actually a game that was already available as they'd released SimCity independently from their basement. Fast forward to 1997 and Maxis was acquired by Electronic Arts for a measly $125 million. Sure, it was the 90s and money isn't what it was back then, but just based on the value of the Sim IP alone, EA made one smart purchase, especially in hindsight and seeing what EA was able to do with the Sim brand. To put how cheap Maxis was into perspective, in 2014, Microsoft bought Mojang for $2.5 billion. In 2020, Microsoft purchased ZeniMax Media for $7.5 billion. And also in 2020, EA acquired Codemasters for $1.2 billion. Now, one of the studios behind one of the best-selling games of all time sold for a fraction of these acquisitions. When you start up a business, your goal is to do what you love and get paid to do it. When Will Wright and Jeff Braun started developing games, I doubt that they thought that in less than a decade they would sell to EA for over $100 million. The legacy that Maxis and SimCity created still lives on strongly in 2021 with The Sims 4 and SimCity Build It being a large part of EA's revenue stream. It was also one of the first, if not the first game that didn't have an end goal objective, kind of like Minecraft. What can you say about Tetris in 2021 that hasn't already been said? It single-handedly made the Nintendo Game Boy a necessity, and if it's not the best packing of all time, I don't know what is. You could even make the argument that without the success of the Game Boy, which in large part was rocketed off of the starting line thanks to Tetris, Nintendo might not have seen the massive success that followed with their handheld hardware, including the Game Boy Advance, the DS, and the 3DS. In an article from Polygon in 2019, they ranked the 30 best Game Boy games for a celebration of the system's 30th anniversary of 1989. And it's no surprise that Tetris is highly ranked. And to be honest, I find it woefully low on their list at number 6. But in the top 10, there are only two games that were released in 1989 along with the Game Boy. And that was Tetris and Super Mario Land. The rest of the top 10 games stretch as far as 1998 with the first in the Pokemon series. My theory is that since Super Mario Land wasn't the same experience that people were used to on the NES, the system likely wouldn't have gotten off the ground the same way that it did. The Game Boy 
and the Game Boy Color ended up selling over 118 million, but would Nintendo have continued to support the handheld without a solid install base thanks to Tetris? We've seen over the years Nintendo abandon support for hardware and peripherals that didn't land the way they were expecting. The Wii U comes to mind, the Virtual Boy comes to mind, and even most recently, Labo comes to mind, which seems like a very interesting concept that could have been taken a little further. In the same argument as the chicken and the egg, would Tetris have sold over 43 million copies if not for the Game Boy, or would the Game Boy not have become one of Nintendo's best-selling systems that established the company as a dominant force in the video game industry since the late 80s? The Tetris IP has continued to stay relevant decade after decade, and this isn't in the same sense that some things hang around for years and you wonder how it's possible. Sure, there have been some rough patches over the years, but even some of the most recent iterations of the series have been critically and commercially successful, including Tetris 99 on the Nintendo Switch from 2019 and Tetris Effect, which was originally released on PlayStation in 2018. Tetris on the Game Boy sold over 43 million copies, EA's paid mobile version of Tetris has sold more than 100 million downloads, and if you factor in the 30 plus variants that the series has seen over almost 40 years, then you have to be assuming that the total series sells are well over 200 million. It's very easy to see the correlation between these amazing debuts and post-release success of these studios in varying degrees. People are highly anticipating the next games from Playdead and Jumpship. Mojang was purchased by Microsoft on the success of Minecraft alone and is now able to release a hit as long as it has Minecraft in the title. Maxis was eventually absolved into EA but SimCity Mobile and The Sims 4 is still a very integral part of their portfolio. Alexei Pajnatov may not be working in games today but he still sees royalties from every Tetris game sold and the IP is still thriving almost 40 years later and finally Valve is still one of the most highly regarded developers alongside still being the biggest digital distribution gaming platform in existence. They might not drive Bugattis, wear gold chains, or have private yachts in the Polynesian Islands, but these studios revolutionize gaming in some form. And next time you're talking with your friends about best of lists, try thinking about the best gaming debuts and you would be quite surprised at just how few studios nailed their first attempt. That's all for the video games podcast this week. I hope you enjoyed it. And if you did, then consider subscribing if you haven't already. And remember to please be nice to your fellow gamer, but more importantly, be nice to your fellow human.